Welcome to the Roots in the Boot podcast by Louisiana Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative. In each episode, we will be talking to producers in and near our state who are willing to share their mistakes, successes, and discuss issues unique to farming and ranching in our southern climate. LGLCI is a nonprofit organization comprised of producers, organizations, and advisors working together to conserve and improve Louisiana's grazing lands, soil, watersheds, and ultimately its people. We promote ecologically and economically sound grazing land management practices through education and networking. Here is this week's episode. Everyone, welcome to the Roots in the Boot podcast. We are joined today by Grant Estrade, who will be speaking about hay and organic matter procurement and placement, um, specifically in southern Louisiana. Um, he and his wife, Kate, own local cooling farms in Bogalusa, which is uh, a farm that uses civil pasture systems. Um, they also own Laughing Buddha Nursery. They do composting and garden soil mixing. They operate an online farmer's market. They have a really great social media following. And probably my favorite fact is they bought their original piece of farmland off of Craigslist. Um, Grant, you guys are definitely busy with a lot of different things, and I'm so excited that you're here with us today and really, truly appreciate you taking the time to sit down and answer some of our questions. Uh, I know Tara already has several great prepared questions, um, but please feel free to add anything else to your introduction. Um, But just thank you for being with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Well, Grant, I know um, I had called you a while back because on our farm that we bought this past year, not off of Craigslist, um, but it was word of mouth that we found this farm that we've moved to. This was a horse training facility. And I had called Grant a while back um, about, because we've been trying to figure out these big, we have three larger piles of horse manure that have been collaborated over the years of the people who had this place before us for four to six years. Um, so Grant apparently is, is the go-to person on how much nutrient you have in any kind of soil you can ever imagine, not just soil, but organic matter. And apparently Grant is our local expert on those kind of things that was recommended to me um, by others, actually. So Grant, tell us, you know, I know I had called you about these big piles of horse manure. Tell me what, what are we getting from horse manure if we have a big pile of this in our pastures or you know, that we got from a barn down the road. You mentioned that you're about to try to get some. Why should, do we want it? Do we not want it? What can we use it for? Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, So all organic matter is going to have some sort of nutrient content to it, right? And, uh, you know, cool thing about internet and books and everything, a lot of that work has already uh, been done for us. Mm -hmm. There are kind of like two things that you should probably know about whatever organic matter you're bringing in. We've been composting. We've had a composting business for about 18 years. So we've been doing that longer than we've been doing the farming part. We've always tried to hustle just, you know, waste other people's waste streams, right? And so currently we're, we're bringing in coffee grounds by the ton. Uh, we bring in hardwood uh, and then we bring in pine bark for some other companies. So, so you know, when we, when we get all those ingredients and in, we're looking at all the, um, all the different details about it, like, you know, um, moisture absorption, does it help percolate? Uh, what's the NPK average, the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium? Does it have micronutrients? And so we kind of look at it, you know, what's the fertilizer value to it, right? And then we'll look at the organic matter. Um, of course, all of these waste streams are, 
are kind of like 100% organic, you know, they're all organic matter, but they're all going to break down in different ways. They're going to have different pHs. Talking about pH, everybody, you know, seven's neutral, anything above seven alkaline, anything below seven uh, acidic. And so you should also have a working idea of what the pH of your soil is. And so if you have a very alkaline soil, um, you know, it may behoove you to try to find something that is, um, is alkaline. So if you have acid soil, if you have hardwood mulch, that's like 7.5 on average, then you know that that will maybe help out some pH issues. And so, um, you know, so what it's made of, what's the NPK, what's the pH, um, and then how does that material break down? How does it interact with water? And then the reason that, you know, when it, when you, when you ask yourself, like, how does that interact with biology? Um, the, the reason that we put in a percentage of, of composted hardwood in a lot of our soil mixes is because that's a really good platform for white rot fungi to grow on, as opposed to an aged pine bark. Uh, you know, fungus doesn't like growing on pine. Of course, you know, pine will rot. Of course, there's plenty of things that want to eat on pine. But for the most part, you know, pine needles and pine mulch, when you look at it, um, it's not going to be full of, you know, a whole bunch of like white mycelium, right? And so it's not going to have a big platform for that. So, so whenever, but it has great percolation, it's got a, a low pH to it. So, you know, so we'll, we'll kind of pay attention to like, okay, is this, is this thing that we're doing? Does it, um, do we want to use more of a hardwood mulch? Do we want to use more of a pine, you know, type mulch? And then we're asking those questions because those two things are readily available uh, in Louisiana, as well as the Gulf Coast. You've got the, the pine industry here. Uh, and so pine bark is readily available. And then, you know, and then so having said all that, when you look at horse stable sweepings, you, you ask yourself, all right, what's the benefit of horse stable sweepings, right? Well, we know that it's mostly uh, pine shavings that are used for the most part um, that, are, that are readily available. Um, it's going to have a percentage of hay in there. Uh, because they're, that's where they're, they're feeding the, hays and the hay into the stalls. And so you're going to have a lot of wasted hay in there. Uh, you're probably not going to have a lot of straw because straw is the, uh, is the stem of grain plants like corn and, uh, um, you know, whatever other grain, you know, wheat. And so there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of those products being grown in South Louisiana. And if they are being grown, um, straw baling is not like a big thing here right so you can't get on the phone and get like straw in it's got great bedding qualities to it it's got super low nutrient quality to it so it doesn't have a feed value so it would be a great bet cheap bedding material to get our hands on but we just can't get it and so um anyway going back to the horse stable sweepings uh it's got horse manure in it which is uh, a very low nutrient um level to it uh, but it has, if it, you know, if it's stalled horses, which most of this is from individual stalls and they muck out like every day or whatever their, their protocol is, um, the, the most potent thing in it is going to be the horse manure. I mean, sorry, the horse uh, urine. And that's obviously going to be very rich in nitrogen. And so, so when you're dealing with horse stable sweepings, it's going to be, um, you know, high organic matter, uh, potentially most likely a low pH to it. Um, and even though that there's horse urine in it, it's going to be a low NPK value. So, you know, I would never look at the horse stable sweepings as a fertilizer. I would look at it as a super high carbon, high organic matter, um, you know, amendment is how I 
would view it. So that that's kind of like, so whatever you come across, you kind of want to go through that little exercise of like, like, what is it? How can I use it? And what's it made of basically? Is there like a um, directory or a list of different types of manure and sh stall shavings of where we can find, okay, this has this value, this has this value, this has this value. Is there a resource for that? Yeah, you know, uh, online, if you just Google like, uh, oh, and I'm sorry, I, I talked about NPK, but I forgot to talk about CN ratio. Your carbon nitrogen ratio is the, the uh, carbon to nitrogen. So I think horse stable sweepings, well, well, anyway, well, coffee grounds is like 20, 20 to uh, 20 to one. Uh, horse say, I'm just making, I'm gonna make these numbers up. So let's say coffee grounds is 20 to one. So there's 20 parts um, carbon to one part nitrogen. Uh, horse stable sweepings might be something like, um, you know, like 40 to one or 50 to one, depending on if there's straw in there or not. So, so as the, the amount of carbon increases, um, then and then your nitrogen uh, lowers, then you're going to know that it's got a lesser nutrient value and it's going to be more of like a mulching material. As your carbon number goes down and your nitrogen starts ticking up, that means that it's going to be um, a much more nutrient dense material. Uh, and then it's going to have a higher fertilizer value. And then that the consequence of that is also like on your handling. So if it's like, um, if you're bringing in like shrimp waste or like a fish meal or something like from a, a crab or shrimp processing facility. So like if you're in Acadiana and you got a friend who's got a crawfish processing plant and you can get all the crawfish shells, um, mm -hmm. I don't know the end ratio of that's gonna be, but it's probably gonna be somewhere like, like 10 to one or 15 to one. So it's gonna be really hot, high nutrient, high nitrogen, high uh, moisture content, um, perfect material for flies to grow in and for it to become uh, kind of like a gross smelly mess. And so you need to be ready to balance that out with, um, with like carbon. So, um, so that's the other thing that you need to look at um, is your carbon nitrogen ratio. That's gonna indicate like how your handling is gonna go are you going to have fly issues? Are you going to have any other kind of like weird issues with it that you're going to have to be able to, um, to deal with? Now, um, going back to your question about the resources, online, there's a bunch. Usually, I mean, um, very early on, Rodale has been putting out the CN ratios and average NPK ratios of ingredients. And so if you just go into Google and go NP, NPK, average NPK ratio of horse stable sweepings, uh, you're going to be able to find an average number. You know, if you put in um, carbon nitrogen ratio of horse stable sweepings, you're going to come across a couple of different uh, average ratios, and they're pretty accurate. I mean, it's it's always going to depend on like exactly where it's coming from and how it's been handled. But those things are readily available now uh, for folks that are looking um, for those kind of like uh, printed resources. Um, maybe I can send you some. Some, link, some things, you can put some links in the, the, the podcast, but there's several composting books um, that have just uh, come out. Um, the, the, there is actually a new book that just came out, which is like the currently like the go-to book on, uh, this is a composting book, but it's the composting handbook. Um, it was, uh, it's being sold through the, um, uh, the US Composting Council. 
you know, it's like a textbook. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm looking at it. It's like wow. three inches thick, you know, it's a hundred dollars. Um, of course, like I just got mine in like a couple of months ago and I was like, I couldn't wait for it to like come in, you know, kind of a thing. And that's pretty much a very modern um, handbook on composting. And so they're going to go into depth on all the different a la carte ingredients and, you know, how to compost them and how to break them down and, and all that sort of thing. Um, there is a, uh, on-farm composting book that was put together um, by some universities years ago. And there's actually a free PDF online where you can just print out, get that PDF printed out. Um, and that goes into depth on it. And then Rodale Press has a really old composting handbook. Um, and there's like a whole chapter with just a, a table of all the different, you know, CN ratios and NPK ratios of, um, I'm pretty sure they have NPK ratios. Anyway, that's a book. So it answered, so long, long way to answer that question is, yeah, all those resources are out there. And then there are several labs that say you needed to figure out um, what it, what your, this material is that you're dealing is made of. You can call a lab and say, hey, I need to know the, the NPK ratio. I need to know the carbon nitrogen ratio. And I need to know the micronutrient makeup of this, um, of this product and if you can definitely get that done most land-grant universities say like lsu are not going to be able to do that analysis for you um as far as i know currently um so there's several other ag labs that you can certainly send off samples to to get that figured out yeah awesome and it was interesting there was actually a farm in st francisville recently who i heard was going to be bailing some straw from their grain crop yeah, um, I have not confirmed. It's it's very rare, like you said, in Louisiana to be able to find that. So that's kind of a unique thing for our area to to be thinking about. What about when you're? We do have quite a bit of even small gardeners who would talk about this, and we'll come back to the big piles of of horse manure or organic matter and what to do with those. But what about um, in a gardening situation, and you're you know you're getting those organic matters in a small form you get you know you go to one little coffee shop in your small town or you have a few sheep in a stall or a few goats in a stall or chickens a lot of people have backyard chickens do you recommend putting that straight onto a garden and then composting it through the winter or do you recommend kind of having a separate compost pile um so there there's a couple different ways to look at it um the biggest things to ask yourself if um like the, the higher the nutrient level, the more you're going to want to pair that with something else. So let's say you're getting something that's super concentrated, which is chicken litter, right? Chicken manure. So uh, chicken manure, because, um, you know, birds urinate and defecate kind of like in the same packet, it's got not only the fecal matter in it, but it's got the urine in it. And so that's going to be typically pretty hot, uh, high nutrient, um, and, and it's uh, very dense. And so it's not going to percolate water or drain very well. And then it, it's super concentrated. So you'd want to pair that with uh, another type of material. And that could be, you know, bark or, you know, whatever's kind of like light and fluffy, high carbon material. Typically what I, what I recommend for folks to do is, yeah, you always, yeah. If like, if in doubt you can pre-compost it, but if you have, um, so what I recommend is getting several different ingredients and just mixing them together, right? And so the very common rule of thumb is, um, you know, uh, 
you know, X part green to X part brown. So you're going to get uh, whatever your browns are, are going to be your high carbon materials. They're going to drain. They're going to take a little bit longer to break down. You're going to pair that with your high nitrogen. Um, it's you do kind of do like an average um, um, and you, you can kind of do an average of like two parts carbon, one part nitrogen, three parts carbon, one part nitrogen and, and mix those. Um, seasoned gardeners kind of have an eye for that. You know, they kind of know what what it should kind of like look like and feel like. And when they grab the fistful of and they squeeze it, they kind of know what it, you know, how dense it should be. Um, but that kind of stuff, I really recommend mixing pre-season before you plant into it. Uh, absolutely. And if you can pre-compost, so, so the stuff that you're concerned about are weed seeds. So like when people call and they have, and they want to use um, like rotten hay or old hay into their vegetable garden, I really try to get people not to do that because there's a very heavy uh, seed load in that. And for them to get rid of that seed, they have to uh, get the temperature up and kind of cook it out a little bit. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to, you know, we're, as gardeners, weeds are probably the number one thing that's going to give us heartache. And so you don't, you want to limit the amount of weeds that you have growing in there. And so, um, so that's another thing that you want to look at your feedstock, you know, this waste stream that you're taking in, you need to ask yourself um, a couple of questions of uh, what's the seed load in it, like a weed. And, and then when I say weed, that could be grasses. I mean, that could be, um, that could be uh, rye seed, or it could be um, um, any Bermuda grass seed, or you know whatever kind of hay you're getting in. Any of that grass seed is going to uh, cause you heartache in your garden, right? Um, you know, does it have the potential for herbicide in it? And so, if you're if you got hay or another feedstock that you know where herbicides were sprayed, um, then you may not want to use that in your vegetable garden because some of these herbicides can hang around for a while. And it may not impact anything in, in, say, your pasture, but in your vegetable garden, some plants like tomatoes or and other capsaicin type plants are are pretty, you know, vulnerable to that. So that's the other thing. So weeds, herbicides, um, uh, are going to be, and then your drainage are going to be like three major things that you're going to be looking for. And so when you're getting these in, um, the longer you age them before you use them, and the more you mix them with other materials, on average they're gonna make a better material for your, your garden bed. Um, there's a great method of lasagna gardening where you do like one layer of material, cardboard, another layer of cardboard, and you end up building this thing up that's like two foot tall. Well, it's gonna shrink down to six inches, uh, but if you do that pre-season, that's actually not a really bad way to do it. So you can almost make a compost pile, and this is more of a cold composting method, but you can do it like a composting pile basically in the shape of the garden bed that you want. Um, and then just leave it there. You can even throw a tarp over it and just let it kind of sit there and do its thing. And it will break down. Worms will come in and they'll do their thing and you can kind of plant right into it. You're not gonna be killing weed seeds that way, but it's a very easy, um, you know, um, I don't wanna say lazy. I, 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 Cause I'm lazy. I, <laughs> I wanna do the easier thing, right? So, uh, so yeah, so you want to, it is labor free. And so, uh, so if you got these materials in, you build your, your bed pre-season, like three months before you plant, tarp it, forget about it, or mulch it really heavy, and then forget about it, and then plant, plant later, so. That's super, because, um, you know, I found in farming, I started with gardening, 
and then we built a farm much later in life. And I've, I've been a gardener since I was a kid. And so really all the principles that apply to gardening and all the things you can learn in gardening and composting really do carry over tremendously to a larger scale of farming for our farmers on hand. And you mentioned the the hay and the, and the weed seeds that it can be in hay. Um, that's been one of our biggest struggles. And I, I meant to ask you about that on hay. You know, we're going to talk about hay unrolling versus unrolling, you know, both versus not unrolling. You'd mentioned something about that. So tell us a little bit about unrolling and rolling. But also my biggest question is we have a tremendous amount of weed seeds everywhere we put out hay. And, and, and the next summer, I mean, that's our biggest, we have weeds that are two and three feet tall. It's got little pink flowers on it. I can't remember the name of the main one. It's two and three feet tall and just spreads everywhere. It's got white and pink flowers that look like little seeds on them. And it's just a mess where we put out hay. And everybody swears by this method of, you know, that the hay is good for our pastures, but we have not had that experience personally that much. So tell us about what do you unroll or roll? And then, you know, how do you combat weed seeds in your hay? Got it. Okay. I, I think my first answer <clears throat> that is that we have goats. <laughs> so if we if, if we have weeds in the pasture, um, the goats are going to eat it. Um, so I, I guess from my perspective, it it doesn't really bug me all that much because uh, literally the goats will kind of eat. They um, they eat everything except for pepper vine. Pepper vine's a native vine. Um, and they just don't eat it. And it, it's, it's kind of weird that they don't need it, but literally they'll eat everything from, um, from uh, uh, curly dock to ragweed, uh, both, you know, um, uh, you know, small ragweed as well as giant ragweed. Um, the nightshade, I think what it sounds like you're describing, um, they'll, they'll eat nightshade down. Um, they'll eat, I mean, like, anything and so so yeah so so anyway so having having in full disclosure we have goats so i really don't care if um if we have like a weedy pasture because sometimes we really do but because we're doing the goats and the cattle you know whatever the goat whatever the cattle don't you know pass up um the goats are going to eat it and then whatever gets too um uh, too woody and neither one of them want to eat on it uh we do clip maybe twice a year and so the way that I view um, some of the weeds that are out there, when we clip, I, I just feel like I'm growing organic matter out there, you know, because it does get incorporated in. And so I've, a long time ago, I lost my eye for caring about weeds. So that's, a, so I'm biased. <laughs> just want to let you know that that's where I'm coming from. Um, and so if, but yeah, but that, that, I mean, that's the deal because if, if you know, especially with our climate, so many different things grow so fast. Um, and, you know, the guys who are growing hay, especially now that um, costs are so high, you know, they're not going to be like reseeding, you know, their hay, their hay fields. Um, they may or may not uh, go back and fertilize it with anything. Um, and then, um, and then that coupled with, they may cut it all the time, right? So it may be just a hay feed field and they're not grazing it. And so they're not letting manure go back on the field. So as, as we all know, as, as they cut hay constantly, um, you know, broom sedge is gonna start coming in and other things are gonna start coming in um, and it's gonna make their, their hay a little bit weedier. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a little bit of a problem. So I, I mean, that 
you know, one way to look at it also, and this is what we talked about before, is you can try to use the hay or feed the hay in areas where your pasture is doing pretty poor, you know, already. And so if you've got really good sections of pasture uh, and you're feeding hay, maybe, um, you know, your context, your situation is saying, you know what, I know that there's a lot of weed seed in this hay. I really don't want it on this area because this area of the pasture is like beautiful and I really don't want to mess it up with introducing any other weed seeds. But I've got this other area of the pasture where I'll just be happy if like anything grows because you may have soil exposure there. You know, uh, it may be an area that just doesn't uh, percolate and drain well. So you want to get more organic matter over there. And so if the weed seeds do grow in that spot, Eh, maybe not as bad as if it was growing on a better spot. That's kind of a, a personal decision, um, you know, on, on dealing with that. But yeah, yeah, the weed seeds coming in hay, I, I'm afraid that that's, that's the thing. Um, and you're just going to have to place the hay in areas where it's not going to bother you as much to have that weed seed in there. That'd be my take on it. Yeah. And, you know, I had visited with Ted about this question uh, personally a while back, and he said, he doesn't have that problem, but he's harvesting hay on his place, which is having grazing impact. And, you know, he's probably grazing at some and the nutrient value is really good on his hay fields. Yeah. And then he's only, and then the, the seed that he has is the seed that, that he's grown on his plate. So it's kind of a cool mm -hmm. cycle that he has going on. But like, like us, if we're buying hay from some hay vendors then, and they may be getting new leases all the time and losing leases mm -hmm. and they're always pulling from different fields. You just kind of don't know what you're, um, what you're getting into. Yeah. And I mean, everything comes out of that. I mean, we use a lot of the old, you know, old hay that we can just get cheap as bedding for our pigs when we do deep litter for the hogs and that, uh, that manure, the going back to the manure quality is, um, it's pretty high nutrient. It's very dense. Um, and there's a lot of it and it, the, they do eat a lot of the hay, but of course a lot of the hay becomes part of the bedding. And so that material is so full of weed seeds uh, and other seeds that, I mean, it, it's like a forest grows out of it when I, when I pile it up and after it goes through like a composting, a pretty rough composting cycle. When I say rough, meaning that I'm not turning it six times and doing a protocol with it because we're just using it on our place. We're not selling it as compost. I, and I would never try to sell this compost because the effort it would take us to compost it to a point where the weed seeds were gone because the amount of hay in it, it's just financially not worth too much, too much fuel, too much labor, too much equipment use. And so we're just going to use it in areas of the farm that are, um, that are low, poor drainage, you know, things of that nature. So, yeah. The, the main takeaway is that we need goats. I think that's. No. Uh, everyone <laughs> that's, else, right? that's what I heard for sure. We, you know, the, are, um, the, the, I have a love hate relationship with the goats. And, uh, you know, when I love them, I love them. And then uh, when I don't like them, uh, I want to, I want to get rid of them. You know, I want to load them up on the trail. <laughs> uh, but I, I will say, um, we're, our goats are getting, our herd is getting better and better because we're getting rid of like the beginning stock that we had. And now the goats that we have are born on the farm and they're exposed to net fencing at electric net fencing, you know, as soon as they're kids. And then they get exposed to 
you know, mul you know, uh, high tensile multi-strand perimeter fence right away. And they, they really do respect that. Um, and um, they get exposed to single strand um, and um, they're getting easier and easier to deal with. And I'm also getting uh, hopefully wiser and wiser with dealing with them. But yeah, I mean, having the sheep and the goats on the, on the farm to take care of those weeds. I mean, it, it is a, it's a justifiable thing. You know, it really is. Even if you, um, we, not to get off the topic, but we had a customer came and bought um, just 12, um, three month old, four month old bucks from us. And, you know, he, he's going to let them on his pasture. He's going to let them clean it up and small ruminant value stays, stays pretty consistently high. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're in demand. And so he's just going to use them for a season and then he's just going to sell them either at auction or he's going to call one of the local processors uh, that need mm -hmm. all the that they need to, to supply their markets. And um, and so, yeah, he's going to he so he just bought a temporary work crew. And when he's done with them, he's just going to sell them. And, and that's also a very feasible idea. So, you know, not not to make this a goat episode, but I went to a conference where it was for like people beginning in agriculture and the main speaker is she only does goats and at the end of the conference they pulled all of the crowd of like okay um if you're looking to expand your operations like are you thinking about cattle sheep goats and like over half the crowd after her talk was like i'm getting goats as soon as i get home i'm getting goats and which is awesome but i think that then people started having conversations and realized there's a time and place for goats and if you don't have the weed management problem then goats may not fit your system super well so right and and with being in a high rainfall area you know we um you know we've got a very a mutt herd you know it's got um a lot of my, a lot of my tonic in it from the early beginnings when we put the herd together um and it, we use kiko bucks right now and it's got a little boar in there um but we we called very hard in the beginning uh we don't worm we rely upon, you know, rotational grazing, you know, a total mineral mix 24 seven um, and then heavy culling. And we really have been able to have a very healthy goat herd uh, with no real worm issues. And, uh, and we have low, we're, we're in a low area, you know, so we're in a, a, a poorly well-drained, most of our acreage is poorly, you know, well-drained and um, that on top of the high rainfall, it, it's not the best in the world for goats, but our goats are, they're, they're rolling with it, but they're smaller goats. You know, they're not, they're not a huge uh, boar goat that when you sell it is going to weigh, um, you know, like 95 or hundred pounds or something like that. So, so yeah, there's definitely a time and place for goats for sure. And you gotta be, you gotta be kind of prepared for, for that, for sure. It's not a willy nilly um, animal to get like people call us and they say, you know, I, I've got three acres, it's fenced, I'm tired of cutting the grass, I'm thinking about getting some goats, and I'm like, no, just go get, get some cattle, you know, there's so much easier, you know, and so, um, but they think that goats is going to be easier, and it's the exact, it's the exact opposite, for sure, yeah, so, definitely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or sheep. I would recommend sheep in that kind of circumstance, too, because they prefer the grass, from my experience, the sheep tend to prefer grass versus the weeds. So, and we're kind of in this place where we don't have a lot of weeds here at our new place. It's a lot of open pasture and a ton of grass. So our goats tend to 
uh, we have to be fed. No, we we have right. to feed them all because we don't have the brows like we used to with the old house with more woods around. Right. <clears throat> Thus, we're we're developing these hedgerows that are going to be real browsy um, for, mm. for for habitat reasons and wildlife reasons and shade reasons and all this kind of stuff. But so we're building in um, a browse that's going to be part of our farm. And I think it's just like super cool from a, a, a habitat ecology perspective, but you're right. Yeah. But, if you're just, but if you're just doing pasture, um, yeah, the goats are going to be like, where's, you know, where's my Yopon, man? You know, I want to, <laughs> where's that, you know? So anyway, um, but to go, to go back to the, Hey, we don't, cause like Ellen said, yeah. we don't want to do a, a goat uh, session, but anyway, um, <laughs> we yeah, tell us uh, about unrolling. Yeah. Unroll. So, we have never um, really unrolled our hay for a couple of reasons. And I've, I've been, I've visited other farms where they've either had uh, large square bales and they would flake them off. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, these are like the, you know, the huge square bales. So they'll flake them off and that's like the equivalent to rolling out a round bale or they'll outright um, roll out a round bale. For, from, from our context, we don't have enough cattle to where we can put that amount of hay out and they eat it right away because we have softer ground. Um, it, for us, it would actually be wasted very quickly because during the months where we would be feeding hay is when we kind of have that, you know, forever moist kind of wet soil. Um, and it would be kind of a way, we would be wasting a lot of the hay um, if we if we unrolled it. So. I, I see, so when you, when you have like a, um, an area that needs a lot of help, like if you've got like a, a newly formed uh, berm against the new pond, you've got exposed ground that from a project or you just installed a road or you just grubbed a section out, you have to clear some brush out and it's exposed soil or something like that. That's an, a fantastic way to, to get stuff growing there right away. You can roll that out as long as you know that you are wasting a lot of hay, you know? So if you've got other reasons why you're, why you're rolling out the hay, and this is from a high rainfall, low, you know, low ground kind of opinion, then it's totally worth doing that. But from the day in day out, if you're feeding, you know, a, a higher quality, you know, cow grade kind of hay, um, then we've actually moved to using these big round bale um, mangers or hay racks. And so the, the round bales are, you know, they're two feet off the ground. You know, we got to pick them up with the loader, drop them in the, that cradle and hardly any hay ends up getting wasted. And so, uh, and they really eat something like, I mean, like 95% of that round bell gets consumed. And I, but I do move that, um, that manger around. I mean, this is a heavy duty uh, steel pipe rack you know, it's super heavy duty. So, so we'll, but we will move it around. So like, we'll, we'll bale graze with this cradle uh, or this big manger because I don't want to waste the hay. And so, cause if we, even if you use a, um, uh, a typical uh, round bale uh, corral, you know, ring in our climate, I feel like it, they still end up wasting a lot of the hay cause that, that hay gets wet just from sitting right on the ground. And so that, that's kind of like my opinion of it. I mean, if you've got a really well-drained slope and you got a hard pack kind of area and 
that area needs a ton of organic matter, then yeah, I would go ahead and evaluate that area of your property um, and unroll it. But if even if you unroll it and then we get a one inch rainfall event later that day, all that hay that you put out is just gonna get trampled and, and, and quote unquote wasted. And so I, I, that, that I think it's highly situational uh, in our area to either unroll it or not to unroll it and to use like a hay rack um, and then just to give a plug to these guys, uh, there's a company in Kentwood um, called the, uh, the Pipe Shop. <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I'm getting this right. So the Pipe Shop in Kentwood, they're great. And they make this hay rack. And so, um, and there's hardly anybody I know of nationally. I never really see anything like this for sale. But anyway, they have them and they're in Kentwood. So they're not far from us. So we've, we've gotten, uh, we've got two of them that we use. And so um, now, <clears throat> but what we were saying before about like the nutrient value if you're getting mm -hmm. inexpensive hay, then like, like, why not? Right. So, and then, you know, that, cause I mean, and this is, this kind of goes into um, like Jim Garish's book, like Hick the Hay Habit. I think that's Jim's book. Um, because if you look at how much hay costs uh, to, to make, how much hay is sold for. And if you do a nutrient evaluation of the hay in terms of uh, nutrients for your animals, but also from a soil perspective, like what's the carbon nitrogen ratio, what's the NPK ratio, what's the micronutrient ratio, the literature has been pretty clear that if, if you're spending like 35 or $40 on a round bale of hay, then you are going to be getting that dollar equivalent in um, and soil nutrients, NPK, micronutrient, organic matter. And so if, if you've got the budget and, you, and you're looking at, hey, not, not as um, just a feed cost, but I need to input organic matter into my farm and you're willing to waste a certain percentage of hay, then the numbers are very clear. Um, I was at a, uh, years ago, I was at a little three-day um, uh, pig workshop up at uh, Jordan Greens in Virginia, and he uses a lot of hay. And um, I like using like the wood chips, you know, because we can get our hands on that really easy and, and a lot of it at one time. And I asked him, I was like, all things being equal, why, you know, why would you do hay over wood chips or wood chips over hay? And he goes, well, they cost about the same, but the difference is that the pigs will actually eat a lot of the hay. And as soon as he said it, it was the answer was obvious to me because the hay is going to have uh, a feed value to it and like a roughage value to it for the pigs, but it also has a high carbon content, so it's bedding at the same time. Whereas the wood chips is zero roughage, zero feed quality for the pigs. And, um, and so you're, if you're going to spend, say, you know, uh, $25 per unit, if that's a cubic yard or just a round bale, whatever you, and then a round bale is something like, you know, on average, a round bale, a round bale by volume is something like two cubic yards, um, you know, mulch and, and wood chips is sold by the cubic yard typically. Um, and so hay and wood chips mulch may cost very close to the same amount dollar wise like factoring delivery and pickup and all this stuff and so you know if you do have that area where you want to unroll hay 
and you know that you're wasting a percentage of hay, then I would just say, you know, just ask yourself, what's the value of that organic matter for that area of the field? And then maybe the numbers and then that technique that you're using will make sense. Does that make sense? It, it really does. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah. And your pigs are going to have, they're going to be able to convert the hay to meat and then also, you know, waste, which is going to fertilize the soil as well, fertilize and add carbon to the soil. So yeah, that makes sense that hay would be a more efficient way to do that, depending on your price of hay. But now you said something about, you know, that you don't have enough cattle. I know you guys raise grass finished beef as well. So how many cattle are you running and how many do you think is realistic for somebody who could roll out hay and not waste it? Right. So I think, um, you know, so just for context, everybody knows we've got um, 60 acres. Um, and so not, not a very big place. Uh, we're not breeding cattle. We're just finishing the cattle. We are breeding the goats and breeding the, the pigs, um, but we're just buying stockers in for the cattle. Um, you know, we're going to keep with our land because we're in low and we know that we're going to have issues with water and we're not going to graze some sections and all this kind of stuff at certain parts of the year. Um, you know, we're probably going to keep an average of like 35 or 40 head at a time, max, like I think 40 head at any given time with our max stocking density. Um, and, you know, they, you know, 40 cattle that don't have pasture to eat on i mean it takes them i don't know like two days maybe to go through you know maybe three two or three days to go through a round bale you know just have just this averaging out um depending on the size of the round bale and all that kind of stuff so if you going by that and it, if it's going to take them say two days to eat that entire round bale i know if i put that whole round bale out that whole thing is either going to be eaten or trampled in one day right and so i would I mean, going just off of my observation on our ground, it almost seems like if you're going to roll out one round bale, you need something like, I don't know, 55 or 60 head, you know, something like that. That That's getting a little bit out of my wheelhouse <laughs> uh, because sure. I'm not cattle, you know, wife or cattle type person. And, uh, you know, I always say that the folks who've had cattle their whole life, most of their life, you know, they've... Um, they've forgotten more than I'll ever know about cattle. <laughs> so freely admitting that, but, but yeah, but, but I would say, you know, put a round bell out in a controlled scenario and see how long your herd takes to eat that round bale and know that if it's two days and if you roll out a round bale, then, then you're only going to get one day of feeding out of that, that round bale on average, if the soil in your area, you know, and is going to be moist oh. or, yeah, or we have a rain event. I mean, here the past um, like month and a half, we've had a couple of one inchers. Uh, we've had one like four inch, one three inch. You know, it's just we've been getting, it's been dry and then we get hit. It's been dry and then we get hit. And so if you've got the, if you roll out, you know, and then it's frustrating because you don't know what, what's going to happen. And so you're like, I got to feed them hay today, but it may rain. And there's a, like a 50% chance of thunderstorms, but that thunderstorm is going to end up bringing you an inch of rain, uh, even if it's over your place for like an hour. Um, you know, you just got to think about that. So I, 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 I'm a big fan of getting all those variables in and looking at the context and making the best decision that you can uh, within that window. And that, 
that's actually something I'm kind of like working on is like the decision-making process on the farm, because mm -hmm. literally you can't have like one way to do it because you're going to be changing out the way that you're doing something maybe like uh, several times in a day, you know, like the first half of the day could be dry. The second half of the day could be wet and literally you got to come at it from a completely different perspective, which drives people nuts because, you know, you, you know we all want to do it like one way, you know, like, I mean, can you imagine Hi. like having cut like a hundred acre, like say you're in a hay cutting business and you have a hundred acres and literally because of the change in weather, you've got to like change the way that you're cutting hay, like two to three times over the course of that one field. I mean, some, it feels like that all the time uh, in our, in our area, just because of the, the, the rainfall. And so, um, so I think it's really important for everybody to say, um, I don't have one way to do it. I've got like 10 ways I'm doing it. And I'm just going to pick the one of the 10 ways of how we do it uh, for this afternoon. And I got to, and I have to just be happy with it. But this is, <laughs> this is how I'm doing it this afternoon. Uh, call me tomorrow morning and I may be doing it uh, different because <laughs> overnight or something. So I, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's kind of comical, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And I can imagine that, you know, we have four leases and then our home and really our leases are in the Felicianas and it's hilly. And I can imagine also, I'm, I'm, I went to Ruston and West Monroe this weekend and in Ruston, it's so hilly in Lincoln Parish and it's a lot of hills and probably a lot of dry spots on top of those hills. So I could see, you know, in those drier situations and it seems like kind of above Alexandria, they don't have quite the afternoon thunderstorms like we do and the, the, the big rain events like we do. It might be a, a day or two coming through of rain, but then a, a lot more drier situation. And from not, what I understand about your place, I haven't been there officially yet, but um, what I understand about your place is it's kind of like our home here in Slaughter, Louisiana is close to Baton Rouge. We're just kind of, if it rains, the ground is going to be saturated for two days at least, at the least. <clears throat> and then this time of year, it's saturated almost all the time versus I would imagine, you know, but our farm in St. Francisville with the hills and especially our Clinton lease farm, we have some areas that hardly hold water at all. So I'm assuming that's what you're talking about, about where you would put organic matter, if any type, whether it's hay or the horse stall pickings or whatever. Am I correct on that? Put it on the tall, dry parts? Yeah, yeah, I would. So what, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, you're, you're, that's exactly right. So if you've got uh, hilly terrain, which, yeah, I mean, we're, we're almost in like the Louisiana equivalent of a valley, you know, just mm. relative relative to the, the terrain around us. Um, and so um, definitely that's what we're dealing with. If you've got, yeah, so if you've got, if, if you're in a hilly area of Louisiana, Mississippi, absolutely, you can say, all right, I'm, I'm gonna feed hay on the hills and that's just what, that's where I'm feeding hay. And I think on those areas, you can feel pretty comfortable with um, like rolling out hay, right? If, <clears throat> If the amount you roll out is going to get consumed by um by the cattle oh, real, yeah. right and that that's that's part See, of it especially so, before it gets saturated before and, and right. you can kind of instead of putting a days to it or a number of hours or whatever just until your hay gets saturated and completely ruined so if it's all disappearing in one day you're good to go 
right? Or right. until or until it gets saturated and, and I, ruined. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely my observation that I've seen um, with folks. And then you know, YouTube is you know I love YouTube, right? You, you like YouTube University. I'm always on YouTube, and uh, and then you watch people in other parts of the country doing these techniques. And then you can say, well, yeah, he's doing that because they get 20 inches of rainfall every year, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so you really need to look at that. And, and I think the mindset is, I think you need to go back to what I said before, is that you really need to like, what's the benefit of, of rolling out the hay? What's the benefit of using a traditional ring corral, uh, you know, hay ring? What's the benefit of using like this big round bale off the ground manger? Um, you know, what are the what are all the benefits of all the different things uh, or even putting a strand of uh, hot fence, you know, by, you know, across the round bale somehow and kind of rig that up to where the cattle can only munch, you know, can only get to what they need. I think, I think all those techniques, they all need to be um, different tools in our toolbox and you need to be prepared to implement any one of them at any given time, depending on, you know, what part of the farm you're on and the time of the year and, you know, what kind of rainfall, you know, we're getting. I, I think that's, I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons is to know, you know, why you're doing what technique uh, and what's causing you to do that technique that's out of your control, like the weather, uh, and just know what the benefit is um, for all that area. You know, so if you, if the, if, 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 you've got a big manger and you know your cattle are eating, they're consuming like 95% of that hay bale, you know you're still getting that organic matter in a form of manure in the field. Um, whereas mm-hmm. if you roll out, you may, they're probably gonna consume less of the round bale. You may not get as much manure. You may get more hay on the ground, more organic matter, but we would prefer to pass the hay through the animals first. So they get the benefit out of it. And then we get the manure benefit at the end. So, you know, these are all the, you know, the questions. And then even um, uh, a traditional manure pack, you know, and these are the things that, that I kind of struggle from with a little bit from an ideological perspective, because we, we want to be rotational grazing. Uh, but if you have a small herd that's easier to control, you know, does it make sense to like the, you said y'all inherited the, uh, the horse stable sweepings. Well, you know, let's say you got an area and you just, you just level all the shavings out and then you use hot fence to corral all your cattle there and you put them there for two months and that's where you feed the hay, you know, or, you know, whatever, however long they can stay there. And then you, and then you form a manure pack right there. Um, and then, and then you go ahead and then you, you push it up with the front loader and then you'll compost it maybe, maybe not. And then you can spread it out with your manure spreader, you know, and, and then you can hit the areas exactly where you want to with the equipment. You know, so there's, there's all these other mm. techniques, you know, that we can do too to, to capture the manure and to do different things and different techniques um, depending on, you know, what you want to do on your farm. I mean, there's so many... Uh, there's so many techniques on on handling manure in a uh, very responsible way um, and handling where you're feeding hay and are you tearing up your ground or not trying to go from one end of the farm to the other end of the farm because you want to continue doing bale grazing and continue doing rotational grazing I I think it's so uh, contextual based upon 
you, the equipment you have, you, the budget you have, the time that you have, and then your terrain and rainfall and climate, you really need to make, you know, the best decision you can on, on where to do it. But, you know, the, the trick is learning all this stuff. You got to kind of geek out and understand when I say carbon nitrogen ratio, you have a, a basic understanding of what that is. And when I say NPK, you know what that is. And when I say micronutrients, you know, I'm saying, you know, uh, zinc, manganese, iron, all, you know, multi, the multivitamin uh, kind of a thing. So, so I think it's really, it really behooves all of us as, um, you know, regenerative ag or sustainable ag or, you know, type folks that we really need to learn about these things because then we can understand. If you understand um, a compost pile, then you then you start really understanding what's going on in your the soil health of your pasture. It's all it's all very very closely kind of related. And you know what's been a game changer um, thought process really for us is when we got into farming, we were always told put your hay in the brush out of the way, always in the same place. Put it in a brushy spot against the woods so that your cattle aren't messing up your pasture. What do you, is that an, a wrong thought process, a right process? You know, it, <clears throat> you know, I, it's, I just find it's fascinating. I, I mean, to think, to think about, okay, what is like, what is the mindset? Like, I don't see it very often, but I still see people, you know, when you, um, let's say you use a traditional uh, hay ring, right? And then you want to move it. Most guys do move those. They do, you know, they do feed in different spots, right? Um, and sometimes uh, folks will burn the remnant hay. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so that to me, when I see them burning it, I'm like, what are you doing? You're, burning, you're wasting the organic matter that you just bought and then you just put out there. Um, and I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they know that that uh, that wasted remnant hay is going to end up killing uh, the sod in that spot. It's going to kind of suffocate it a little bit and they want to get rid of it. And I guess you can kind of like just, you know, use a harrow and kind of drag it out too. Um, and I, so I understand why they're doing that. But on the other hand, I'm like, no, you're you're just like burning organic matter that you bought and that's also got a value to it and so um you know I, I i understand where they're coming from but the long-term uh thing is that we're trying to build soil up because if we built but but these are also the same guys that are fertilizing their pasture right so they're Definitely, not yeah you know they're not seeing the connection between organic matter and fertilization they're concerned about the um you know, that area of Bahia getting, you know, uh, getting possibly killed off and something else coming up. Um, but then I'm okay with a weedy, a weedy pasture. Um, they're not okay with a weedy pasture. Um, but because um, we're in the circles that we're in, we know that like these quote unquote weeds that are in our pasture have a super high nutrient content and a lot of them, the cattle will actually eat. And so it's like, um, why do you want to get rid of those plants if it's if it's potentially got uh, medicinal value, uh, a good nutrient content? You know, there's all the research with, you know, ruminants self-medicating through strategic browsing of quote unquote weeds. And so, you know, you start getting into that kind of stuff and it does make you scratch your head on, 
why are they burning the remnant hay in the field? Uh, you know why they're doing it, but it may not long-term be the best ultimate management, you know, perspective to do it. Uh, and so, so yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, to look at all the different perspectives. And sometimes you do that and you say, you know what, the, the environmental way of doing it is actually not the way to do it. You know, the, the way that they're doing it in more of an old school way may actually be more practical uh, to do it that way. And so that's not often the case, but, you know, we, we look at those and we say, okay, like, um, you know, like, for example, like, um, is doing a manure pack um, in a, in a hoop barn with our cattle, assuming you kind of, you know, you have a, a size herd where you can actually do that. So let's say you got 40 cattle, you know, would it be better to deep litter the cattle for two months in Louisiana versus doing rotational bale grazing? And from a composter's perspective and a soil health perspective, if you have low, low soil, I would say, you know, a manure pack is actually a pretty healthy thing to do. And, and that's on my mind because I'm thinking about doing that for our winters, you know, moving forward because of our soil type is my context. Um, but going back to some of the leases that you have, if it's mm -hmm. hilly, then you may say, you know what, maybe that's yeah. where I need hay. And even when you're buying the hay, you may want to go ahead and put the hay out and pre-stage it on all your hilly areas because that's where you know you're going to be feeding all your hay that year and then you can change up the different high spots from year to year to year um and so yeah it's 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 so much strategic thinking and planning ahead it's um it's it's crazy it'll definitely it, it definitely makes it interesting that's for sure yeah yeah because i don't know i mean we came from a traditional mindset when we first started about six or seven years ago we we were josh and i both we're educated in formal agriculture from land grant universities. And <clears throat> that's just what you're, you know, what you're told and taught by, by traditional people is, you know, tuck your hay away or, you know, <clears throat> it was a, it was kind of a mindset shift, uh, paradigm shift to think of hay as nutrients. That's actually been a really recent paradigm shift for me this year. So um, it's, it's been amazing to think of it that way versus thinking of it as just something that gets in the way and creates weeds everywhere. So what a what a neat shift and you have so much further knowledge on that. I, whenever I look at stuff, I look at organic matter. When I look at organic matter, I look at it from the NPK, CN ratio, pH ratio. That's how I automatically look at, at stuff now. You know, when I, so when I see, hey, I don't, I don't see like ruminant feed. That's, I, that's how I look at it. And so, uh, and the value, the value of it. So we, when the, the materials that we, uh, receive for our composting business, somebody could, um, let's just say there's a material that it wouldn't work from a nutrient perspective or some other perspective. And they said, Hey, Grant, look, we're willing to pay you to receive it on your farm, like take, you know, tippage fee, take it off our hands, please take it. We'll pay for the haul, you know, we'll pay you to take it. But if it's like something that like, I don't want to have anything to do with, then I'm going to say, you know, no, thank you. I appreciate the call. Um, but then there's some other ingredients, you know, some other things I can get my hands on and be like, oh yeah, that's something I, I want. Right. Because 
it's like, okay, I can use it for this. I can use it for this. I can use it for this. And it's got these nutrient profiles to it. So yeah, it looking at it from that perspective, um, it, it changes the way that you, you look at it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That leads into the next thing actually perfectly. What are some alternative uh, organic matter sources that you think are in, in Louisiana that may be underutilized or people aren't thinking about? There are so many, uh, we, we bring in, uh, we work with a couple companies. We, we bring in some um, uh, untreated sawdust from a carpentry shop that does a lot of their own, um, you know, milling and planing. And so that's, that's actually what we use in our chicken brooders is that material. Cause it's very dry. You know, it's, it's small particle size. It's fluffy. It's beautiful stuff. Um, so like that, I, there's a value for that because we'll use in our brooder. So there, there's that, there's untreated, um, you know, milled wood type sawdust available, you know, that's out there. Um, you know, we work with a company where we get coffee grounds by the ton weekly. Um, you know, they're a commercial production, coffee production. Uh, that's very unique. Uh, but what's not unique are coffee shops and uh, other places that are going through a lot, whole lot of coffee grounds. Your average, average coffee shop is going to be putting out five to 10 gallons of coffee grounds per day. And so that adds up, wow. you know, pretty quick. I mean, you know, if you've got large acreage, you're going to be like, oh, I'm not going to go over there and get five gallons of coffee grounds for my acreage. But, you know, it, it, if you, you may use it for your garden or whatever. Um, and then, um, you know, you mentioned the horse stable sweepings. Um, some, most of the horse stable sweepings are going to landfill. And so that is a pretty uh, good source of material uh, to receive on your farm for sure. Um, I just want to note that, you know, the, the higher quality horse hay is probably the most likely to have been treated in some way, shape or form with a herbicide. Um, and so because the horse people are very particular about their hay and they want it homogenous, you know, they want it consistent and that person uh, who's grown at hay is going to be treating it with kid gloves. And so they may use more herbicide than say folks who are growing, uh, you know, cow hay, right? And so, so that's something to be aware of. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, every horse stable sweeping is the bane of their existence. You know, they want to get rid of it. You know, it 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 brings in flies flies reproduce in it and so it causes a lot of heartache in the in the stable in the barn if they have horse stable sweepings outside for any more than seven days <clears throat> six to seven days five to seven days which is the life cycle of a fly you know they lay eggs in the horse manure and the dumpster they start hatching out the flies immediately go to the stable start biting the horses and all this kind of stuff so so they want to get rid of it really fast um you know, so that's, that's an idea. Um, you know, we work with another facility um, that packages beans and they need to get rid of these broken pieces of beans. Um, and when I say beans, like red kidneys, lentils, things like, of that nature. Um, and so we work with them, you know, to, to bring that material over here. And so, you know, we, we, we only work with a, a couple of companies uh, to bring in the material. Um, and we've streamlined it and we've worked out the material handling and how we do it and how we communicate and what the protocol is and who's paying for what. So all that stuff has been negotiated, but um, I, I tell folks to keep an eye out um, for all kinds of stuff. I mean, you just never know. I mean, 
going back to you know Acadiana, you know, so if you're in if you're in uh, like Eunice, uh, Rain, um, you know, your General Lafayette, or, you know, that's west of Lafayette, and then you go, you know, New Iberia or whatever, you've got you're going to have crawfish processing plants that are going to be putting out a lot of crawfish shells every year. That's something to take a look at. Um, you know, if you're in, uh, well, going back to the new Iberia area, Raceland area, uh, sugarcane bagasse is readily available uh, in our area that you can use for bedding and other things. Um, and there's more bagasse than they know what to do with. And so, mm -hmm. so there, you know, there are always, um, local or regional places where you can get a high carbon, you know, material in. Um, and so I, I just tell folks to be super creative um, with how they pursue it. Just know that, you know, if you contact a company or a horse stable or whatever, and you say, hey, you've got this stuff you're throwing away. I really want to get my hands on it. I mean, you really need to be prepared, um, you know, to, to be serious about it, be professional about it, uh, pick up, be on time, do everything that you say that you're going to do. Um, and then, and if you do that, they're going to really like you. <laughs> and then you can have an, uh, a constant inbound, um, uh, you know, material of uh, some sort of, you know, quote unquote, weight, weight stream. I mean, I'm even, I tell people like, even when they're clearing um, uh, utility right of ways and there's a chipper truck and they're bringing that stuff to landfill, you know, it's like, look, if you got a crew, go throw the guy, you know, 20 bucks or a case of beer for later in the day and be like, hey, look, I'm more than happy for y'all to dump all your wood chips at my place. That may only happen every now and then. It might be a, a, a rare event, um, but, you know, you can do that. And then, you know, the other thing that's Gulf Coast specific is that whenever we have a, a storm or hurricane, you know, all that woody material needs to go someplace. So, you know, when you got, when you've got an area that's been devastated, they separate all of the, um, all the trash trash and all the vegetative debris. And that vegetative debris based upon federal guidelines has to be dealt with in certain ways. And they want it to not go to landfill. And so um, just because I'm, I'm in that business, when Hurricane Ida hit, uh, I helped one local company uh, write the permits for uh, for landowners in the area to receive the mulch, and so so they some of these landowners got paid. Not only did they get the mulch, but then they got paid to get the mulch in uh, on their pasture, right, or wherever they can put it. And um, working with them, they're like, "Well, Grant, yeah, I'd love to get paid to take the mulch, but what am I going to do with it?" And I was like, "Well, look, if you can sacrifice that area for a year or two years, you know." get it, get it graded out, you know, put it in your low areas, you know, get everything graded out, you know, spread ryegrass, you can do a light fertilization. Um, and then eventually it's going to turn into some, some really awesome pasture in the, those areas. Cause you're gonna have all this organic matter in there. It's just going to take a long time for it to break down and kind of get back to where it was. Um, but that's a resource. So if you're if you're in the unfortunate situation of being a landowner in a hurricane hit area, um, you know, they may be looking for a place to put that mulch. So that's a, that's a very unique thing to be on the lookout for. Hopefully nobody has the opportunity <laughs> to, to want to look for that material. Uh, but it, it, it happens. So those are, um, I think that's a quick rundown of maybe the stuff that you can get your hands on. But I tell people to be very creative because companies that produce products, 
you know, they need to, they need to throw away the stuff that they're not using. Uh, and if you can go in there to help them um, get rid of it faster, um, maybe not cheaper, but they may be able to use the fact that they're sending it to a farm as like brownie points with their customer base, they might be considered uh -huh. more. And so um, some companies, especially now, they, they want to find partners to where they, they're becoming more and more of a, um, a zero waste facility. And so if you can bring that to the table, um, then they, they, they may be very interested in talking to you, especially if you're, you know, if you're in agriculture professionally, and this is what you're focused on, and you can take large amounts of material, um, then that's something that you can be on the lookout for. So be very creative in, in how you're doing it, for sure. Don't be shy about cold calling people. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't want to keep you forever, Grant, but I had one more question random um, based on that is we had somebody that tell, told us, you know, down the road, there was a dairy, there used to be a dairy on this hill. And I've kind of always wondered, like at your place and then at low places like our home in Slaughter, if you add enough organic matter over the years, can you eventually make it a hill? Is that even yeah. possible? So we have, okay, so I think that you can. So, um, and a lot of times what happens is if it's a, and again, this is like my my observations of things. I've I've not tried, done any any scientific studies here, but um, a lot of times we have percolation issues in those low areas um, because the water just sits right on top of the clay. You know, I mean, it being fully saturated is one thing when we're getting a lot of rain, but if it you know if we got the one inch dump and it it kind of hangs out, we want to see a better percolation rate. Then the organic matter is going to help. I mean, there's just, I've seen it. Um, I've, there's no question I've seen it happen. So, I mean, cause what you're doing is like our fields were uh, row cropped and, and, and have gone through several different things. Um, and so we know that it, it's been kind of abused over the years. I mean, when we, when we got it, it was like, it was nothing but broom sedge and it wasn't even a sod of broom sedge. It was like, you know, broom sedge, bare soil, broom sedge, bare soil. And so we know that, okay, this isn't normal. It's obviously been abused. Um, and so, and it, we know that if we dig past the clay layer, a lot of times we're, we're gonna hit sand, right? And so I know if, if we get organic matter in air and we increase the percolation rate, I know that that's gonna help, you know, help out the drainage a little bit. Um, and so I, 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 I don't know about creating a hill, <laughs> uh, but I know that in the areas so far, uh, it has helped. And in fact, I've gone out in several fields uh, and made sure that I, you know, I put like step in, like temporary step in posts or whatever. I go mark the areas that have the worst percolation. And for years, that's where I would concentrate the organic matter. And it really, it, what, it, what, it, what it has done is I'm sure it's increased the percolation, but I've created a topsoil layer on top of the clay and then a sod has established itself. And so now I've got, you know, this thick layer that if the field's wet, even if I go walk on it, it's not gonna be sitting water anymore just because I've, I've given more places for that water to go, if that makes sense. So I've got, you know, where it was clay, now I have 
a humus topsoil, you know, a humus layer I created artificially by putting a thick amount of organic matter out. And then the root system has established itself in that organic matter layer. And so now I got this big, thick, you know, root mat of sod that now the water may still be there, but at least it's, I've got substance to that area. And so when we, when we walk on it or even drive on it, or we've got animal impact on it, um, it's, it's no longer a puddle of water. It's, you know, it's, it's being absorbed like a sponge. And so I, I think that obviously wet areas are going to be, um, if it's like muck several feet deep and it's kind of a real low area and it's kind of swampy area, adding organic matter to it, you know, I don't think it's going to really resolve that problem. Uh, but in areas that are just water sitting on grade because of poor percolation, um, I have no doubt that organic matter and putting compost that will help. Uh, I've, I, I've, I, I see it over and over again, for sure. Well, I'm sitting here thinking of a corner on our place that that would work with super well. So, oh yeah, you can, you can do a little quick trial, you know, you can do like a, uh, a 10, a 10 foot by 10 foot area and put like one inch, mm -hmm. two inches of the horse stable sweepings on to spread it out. And just not do anything else and then go out there and visit it you know during a hard rain event and to see um what's naturally happening out there and and i think everybody should try to do that because it would be you know you're seeing it with your own eyes and you can kind of see the benefit and then you can play around with it depending on your soil type i, I think that 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 kind of activity is a lot of fun uh to do on the farm uh, it may not work it may work it may not work uh, but I think if you've got the organic matter to do it, um, I think it, it, it you should do it. And I, and I did want to say, you, you can add out the organic matter as is. If you can pre-compost it before it goes out, then, um, then I would, pre, if you can pre-compost it or, or at least get it aging to where it's no longer hot and you've got you know, it's kind of cured and you got white rot fungus growing in it and it smells good. It smells a little bit more like soil. Um, I, I would recommend trying to get it to that state before putting it out. Um, but if you, if you can't, then I would recommend putting it out during the time of the year when plants are, are growing real fast. So I would not put out uh, an unstable oh. high nutrient uh, type of material out say like this time of the year I would and we're in uh, where we're early February where what what is today you know we're, we're still in <laughs> February uh, I would probably wait until in our climate anyway um, in Louisiana I would I would say wait till you know end of February or March or something like that and then it's dried out a little bit maybe you can get out into your fields a little bit better yeah so those areas that have rush growing on them that's a that's an indicator of a good spot to put that on probably well yeah and that might be too wet like we've got this one spot that's mm. got cattails growing on it and i'm not mm. i'm not gonna put i'm not there's other areas that 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 aren't that bad that i could probably heal up but that spot mm -hmm. with cattails that you know that might be a good spot for a swale or a pond or you know a, a seasonal water capture area um, versus you trying to heal it up with organic matter, um, because I, I, I going to work out for that. I mean, it's going to help it, but it's not going to, I would save, 
I would save the organic matter that you're putting out for the areas that that need some quick healing that will give you a really quick turnaround. An area where it's like rushes or cattails or something growing, I'd probably like put that on the, the end of the list. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Good. Well, this might be a two-part podcast. This is a lot of great information about hay and organic matter. So we could probably split this into two. Ellen, yeah, do you yeah. have any? And you know, when it, you know, a lot of times we talk about um, you know, creating a decentralized food system. So you now you have multiple, you know, many farms producing food for the people, you know, as opposed to, you know, vertical integration that we've kind of gone towards. And, and now you and I are, you know, Ellen, we're all part of, <laughs> you know, you know, going back to more of a decentralized food system. The composting folks on a national level talk about decentralized composting to where there aren't just a bunch of like big composting facilities or the organic matter just isn't going to a couple of big landfills. You've got many sites where you can spread out the organic matter and there's no better uh, site to be part of a decentralized system to handle waste organic matter than farms. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. agriculture is the, is the solution to handle our waste to where we don't have to send it to a central landfill and so, you know, if you couple the two worlds of uh, decentralized food system and decentralized composting to reduce organic matter going to landfill, they completely dovetail with one another. And so, and then farmers have, you know, they have a gardening background in some way, shape or form or some sort of soil background. Um, mm -hmm. And either one of those, they probably have equipment with a front end loader on it so they can handle the material, you know? so. Farmers in general are going to be naturally ready and willing and able to handle organic matter. And so I really encourage folks to, to be creative and, and possibly capture those things that are going to landfill and try to use them um, on your farm for sure. Awesome. And just to put in a little plug for your farm and what you guys sell. So at the uh, nursery, at Leffing Buddha Nursery in New Orleans, and um, do you sell on the farm also, Grant? Not right now. Do we you... will, if, if people in our area need a schedule, we'll, we'll have stuff on the farm. So the, the, the shop is in Metairie, which is outside, you know, it's a suburb of New Orleans. The farm is 60 miles north in Bogalusa. Um, right, and then if people ask why in the nursery, uh, 20 years ago, I opened it up as a, as a gardening nursery. And it's evolved into a local foods grocery store. And we're actually about to rebrand it, Laughing Buddha Market, soon. I think we're going to be doing awesome. that this year. Uh, but anyway, but so Laughing Buddha Nursery, yeah. So basically now it's like a farmer's market, local grocery store. We sell all of our beef and pork and eggs. And, uh, and then we aggregate from other producers reselling their, their stuff, um, you know, from honey to ferments to you know, chicken, other, other folks, beef, uh, as you know, if we don't, if we, if we don't have enough beef and, um, and then at the farm, we've got our, uh, the, you know, the livestock operation as well as our composting garden soil business. And so, um, so that's like, that's like what we do. And then we are, uh, we're probably going to have an on-farm store in like a year and a half or two years, we're going to have a, a farm and at the Bogalusa farm, a shop, sorry, a shop at the Bogalusa farm. 
for sure. So wonderful. And Grant, I think we have our eyeballs on you for a pasture walk also to come and see yeah. some of your organic matter usage at your farm. And so you're such a wealth of information. You and Kate both are just very, very, very smart at what you do. You can tell you've poured your heart and soul into learning this stuff. Um, whether it was formally or informally, I don't know, but it sure is a really good information for what more than I could have asked for for this podcast. So we certainly appreciate you. Oh yeah, anytime. No, more than happy to do it. And if anybody has any questions, uh, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. So if somebody needs to send me an email or shoot me a text or a call or whatever, they can do that. Right, and that's in the, we'll put that in the show notes, but it's grant.estrade at gmail.com. Gmail. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Grant, for being with us today. And we look forward to the next Roots in the Boot podcast. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Yes. Thanks, Grant. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Our organization is constantly trying to find new ways to bring relevant education to people in Louisiana agriculture. If you'd like to find out more about LGLCI events, read blog posts, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, you can find that through our website, louisianaglci.org. We can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Lastly, we would like to thank NRCS Louisiana for partially funding this podcast and thank Louisiana artist James McCann for allowing us to use his music.